1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am super excited to welcome Dr. Aubrey Taman and Dr. Calliope M. Christodulaki to the program today to discuss their new book, Beyond the Veil, Reflexive Studies in Death and Dying, published in 2021 with Berghahn. Aubrey Taman is an American studies scholar and anthropologist, and she has begun research into the fields of fat studies and food studies, specifically exploring where these fields intersect. Kaliopi M Christodoulaki is a cultural anthropologist and independent researcher, currently working as a limited-term lecturer at Purdue University, and her research interests include religious practices, social identity, and cultural change. Dr. Taman, Dr. Christodoulaki, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, yeah, wonderful to be
1: here. What inspired you to put this book together?
0: Well, that's kind of a, a long story. Um, so, a, as we mentioned in the introduction of the book, uh, Calliope and I were classmates at Purdue. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Calliope, you, you started before I did, right? Yes. I started I in 2003. Mm hmm. Um, me. Okay. Um, and we. We're both um, now, of course, I, I was not working on this at that time, but over the years, we sort of both discovered that we were both researching death. We both had interests in death um, as an academic subject. And we, I don't even think we had necessarily talked about collaborating until the memorial service of a beloved professor, O.M. Watson. Um, he was emeritus at the time. Um, that he passed away from esophageal cancer and they had they threw this and this was just perfect for him they threw a huge party um, and we were celebrating his life together you know a bunch of his students his daughters uh friends colleagues and we were both talking about things that we were writing about at the time and i mentioned offhand that i thought we should collaborate and then of course life gets in the way and nothing really came of that at that time. But in 2017, I was teaching at Wittenberg College in Springfield, Ohio, and they asked me to um, give a talk about my research at their uh, fall colloquium for the sociology department. And I was so excited with sort of how I had narrowed down my dissertation into this sort of um, brief essay and presentation, and I really liked what I had done with it. And so I remembered that Calliope and I, <clears throat> excuse me, had talked about collaborating. And so I reached out to her and I said, "Hey, do you remember all those years ago when I said we should get together?" Um, and she was like, "Okay, let's do it." So that sort of started the process of putting out the call for papers, narrowing that down, and then you know the the all of the process that comes with putting a book together.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I have nothing to add. That's exactly how it happened. And, um, it was wonderful. Um, having someone follow through with a suggestion like that, (laughs) because sometimes that doesn't happen. So.
1: And why is it so important to have reflexive studies of death and dying?
0: So for me, that is just the way that I write. So I, um, the reason why I went to American studies in particular and not Anthropology in the first place um, was because I was very interested in my own culture. So, sort of um, getting into it rather than just sort of being a member that doesn't ever think about, you know, any of the processes behind why we do the things we do. Um, So, I wanted to get at that. So, I was, um, that's why I ended up in American Studies as a field. But of course, because I'm interested in culture, that's why I. Chose the disc because American Studies is interdisciplinary, so most American Studies scholars are either historians or literary scholars. Um, very few of us are anthropologists, but to me, it just made sense because they both look at cultural studies, and so that is, um, you know, really what I wanted to focus on. And when I was in school, so when I was still taking classes, still interested in um, looking at folklore, actually. Um, I took a class and read Renato Rizaldo's book. um, And uh, I I was like, blown away by just the way he talked about his experiences in the field. And was like that, that is what I want to do. Um, so he was very reflexive. He, he is a postmodernist and so postmodernism in general, although not necessarily in vogue anymore, is um, just reflexive by nature, uh, you know, sort of looking at the biases that we bring in as members of a culture um, when we observe others. And so I just wanted to it was important to me to um, sort of stick to that, you know, acknowledging that in cultural analysis. Anything I say is always going to be colored by my own experiences as a white cishet woman in, you know, Gen, Gen X growing up in the U.S. at a specific time and place. So um, it was just important to me um, as a scholar to, to maintain that sort of conscious connection with my own um, observational biases, I guess.
2: Yes, and I find it an honest way of discussing the the work that we do right because you you kind of lay out your connections to the research you're doing and how that shapes your thoughts about what you're studying so i i i also studied a culture that i had been exposed to since my childhood and so i wanted to make sure that people were aware that those connections existed and and how that might impact my view on the society and the questions I was asking. And I think that's good practice for everyone who's doing any kind of research to kind of step back and think about their work critically and how they influence the qu- research questions they're asking and their analysis of the data that they're you know look, looking at.
1: And so what sort of audience did you have in mind for a book like this?
0: I personally was interested in getting it out there to as broad of an audience as possible. We wanted to make it useful in an academic setting. Um, You know, there are plenty of classes that look at death and dying across disciplines. And so we wanted it to be useful in those contexts. But we also wanted it to be accessible to anyone who might be questioning the processes behind how they grieve, why they're grieving in a particular way, um, social connections that are either made or lost in the context of death. And so we kind of wanted to um, have as broad an audience as possible. So you
1: divide the book into four sections. Could you give listeners maybe a little bit of an overview of each section?
2: Do you want to talk about the first section, Aubrey?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so we, you know, it, it was sort of um, organic, I guess, because we put out our call for papers. You know, we got a lot. We, we had a lot of submissions. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we really selected authors. We didn't even have a number in mind. We basically wanted to find the essays that would fit with what we were trying to do. So we wanted to make sure that there was a genuine attempt at reflexivity. um, And then also, you know, that it was focused, of course, on death in some way. Um, And so we noticed themes, essentially, when we were, when we finally narrowed it down to the, um, what is it, 11, the 11 essays that we included in the book. um, And we just noticed themes. um, And that was actually all Calliope, who you know, sort of pointed out themes and said, why don't we kind of break them down into these sections? Um, and then of course the order there um, sort of makes sense in a way, you know, there's sort of, sort of before death, during death, and then after. Um, but in terms of delaying death, um and this is something that I wrote about in my dissertation. I don't think I mentioned it very much in this essay, but in my dissertation in particular, I talked about how, you know, of course, everybody's, I mean, most cultures have some fear of death, even if it's something that is um, accepted as an everyday occurrence. We don't want to die, right? And so in the U.S., though, there is this sort of almost pathological fear where we want to deny it as much as possible. And so the two essays in part one um, talk about drastic measures that people take to try to delay death as much as possible. So with Allison, you know, she talks about people um, being um, having genetic testing and, and finding out that they have the markers for uh, breast and ovarian cancer and doing, preemptive um, mastectomies and uh, preemptive hysterectomies in order to, um, you know, people who have not been diagnosed, but maybe who have a family history of it might as well get rid of the offending body parts ahead of time, you know, to sort of prevent the possibility that this genetic mutation might take effect. Right. And then Jeremy's work, um, which I thought was, pretty interesting um he works with um i forget the acronym what it stands for but the the radfest the 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 folks who um basically believe that there's a way to prevent death entirely and they look at death as a failure so um people sort of either not doing whatever it is they're supposed to do right or people giving up essentially and so um, yeah. So, and and I and I and of course his work is in Canada, and um, but but I, I think it's sort of a Western idea at this point where you know we kind of want to do whatever we can to kind of prevent death. So that was the first section, and of course the next one has Calliope's essay in
2: it. Yeah. So for caregiving, I mean, uh, there there is a segment of the population where they go through an end of life phase and might require assistance. And uh, that assistance is uh, caregiving, which both uh, Karina Nanville and I experience and write about in our essays. And caregiving is an interesting experience in that it's very isolating, both for the person who's going through that stage in their life and also for the caregivers. Um, Oftentimes people, don't like to be around people who are in the process of dying. And so you find yourself alone and at at both as a caregiver and as, as the individual who is, is dying. And so it's an emotionally and physically draining experience. Um, There's been studies that show that uh, the kind of the stress of it makes heal, uh, wounds heal less quickly and, and, People have kind of medical issues that come up from the stress, but it can also be a rewarding experience. And so for me, I, for six months, I helped care for my grandmother. I felt, you know, I I helped kind of deal with her loss and I was able to learn about dying and death and to see it happen and to discuss it with people who did come to visit and also to watch her. Kind of slowly letting go. So I got to see the process firsthand, and it was transformative. Uh, it was a learning experience. Um, Karina Nangle also writes about how it was a transformative experience for her. She cared for her her mother who has Alzheimer's, I believe, um, and she found it gratifying as well. And and so even in all that darkness, all that, you know, physical exertion, emotional kind of trauma that's happening. You you can, you can also find aspects of it that are important for the person who's dying and also for the person who's, you know, they're giving care to that person. So that section is really about kind of letting go and finding what is rewarding in those experiences. And then we move on to confronting death, which has Aubrey's chapter <laughs> along with two others in there.
0: Yeah, so uh, death is obviously inevitable um, and it happens. And, you know, um, something that I mentioned in the essay uh, is that I... I and suffered a lot of loss, um, during grad school. And that definitely shaped not only my studies, but also how I processed death. I mean, I went through a phase where I was so terrified that, you know, who's next basically, um, you know, I ended up, uh, you know, going through this sort of bout of OCD with my husband and having this goodbye ritual that I had to say exactly the right way or else, you know, how would I feel if something happened to him? And, you know, it got to the point where if I left and forgot something, I'd have to go back and make sure that I said all of the things that I needed to say. Um, And so it was sort of this interesting process of starting out, you know, it, it was something that had always happened. And I think the turning point was the death of my cousin, the suicide of my cousin, because up until that point, everyone I had lost was older. You know, my, my grandfather, great aunts and uncles. Um, and then my, my I, I did lose an uncle, but um, he was not in the best of health. And so it, it, it was sad and heartbreaking, but um, the death of my cousin was really, um, this, this turning point for me of like, you know, people my age die. And so I, you know, kind of had to deal with all of that. And then, um, sort of moving through that, um, getting away from that, being able to, um, heal and, let go of those compulsive behaviors with um, saying goodbye to loved ones, my husband in particular, Um, and then coming out in the end where um, in the revision process of my dissertation, I lost two aunts and my grandmother. Um, And all three of those deaths were a mercy. Um, One of whom had cancer, one of whom was severely depressed. And then my grandmother had had dementia for quite some time. And so it was sort of this, um, it it was kind of this sort of perfect parallel of, um, finally being able to not only complete my work, but then also to be able to let go of some of that fear that I had of death. And so it, it, I, I didn't set out for it to be this cathartic experience writing all of this, but it ended up being that, I guess. And I think, um for Eckhart in particular, he was working as a funeral director. He decided for his work that in order to be sort of the best participant observer, that it would benefit him to just become a funeral director. So he got involved in that field and was able to um, sort of experience it from that firsthand experience. So I I liked being able to put our essays together because I was sort of talking about funeral directors from an outside perspective and he was talking about them from an inside perspective. So um, I really liked being able to have that juxtaposition. And then <clears throat> the final essay in the section and in, in that particular section by Sarah Nitro, um, she did a lot of uh, family history. She did a lot of interviews um, and oral history with her family and the way that her family in particular, dealt with death and dying. And she talks specifically about Catholic ritual. And I found that really interesting, again, and, and of course, this is, I, I guess, me being sort of heavily focused on self. So I apologize for that. But also, having been raised Catholic, um, when I presented my research, I had a friend of mine, um, who is a professor at a neighboring school, um, come over and and sit through my presentation at uh, at Wittenberg and <laughs> she was also raised catholic and she made the comment she was like holy crap i had no idea how catholic your work is and it wasn't something that i had intended to do but almost all of the funerals that i had been to were catholic funerals and they have very specific rituals because catholics require a funeral mass so it's a lot more involved than i think Protestant funerals in the sense that there's this hour and a half long actual mass, um, that people go, you know, go through. And then there's also the wake and then there's also the, um, the graveside service. So it's this really complicated, either very long day or sometimes it's split into two days, depending on, you know, the family, what they do. So, um, you know, she, I think it was interesting for her because um, if memory serves, I think she's younger than Calliope and I are. So she hadn't really faced a lot of personal death um, until you know she started recording these these histories of her family, and that's when she started really connecting with um, you know the the sense or the the experience of familial loss. And so just having like all of these essays confronting death in different ways, you know, someone who had sort of been enmeshed in it, someone who came at it from the professional side, someone who hadn't experienced it very much, but Oh my gosh, death is a thing that happens. It was kind of interesting. I think having those three essays together. Mm
2: -hmm. And the final part, part four was, um, memorialization, which does happen in some cultures where it's important to memorialize the person who's passed away. Um, And we have a public figure, um, Harmon Killebrew, and his memorialization by fans, and including the researcher, Debbie A. Hansen, Olivia Gunteric, and Claudia Belaudet. They wrote about um, memorialization on the internet and kind of... uh, the good and bad aspects of it. Um, Rebecca Moore wrote about memorializing the Jonestown dead and looked at questions of insider and outsider and how people believe that one group was allowed to memorialize the dead while the other shouldn't. And the final essay was um, Cammie Fletcher's which looked at memorialization using Um, Rest in peace T-shirts among African Americans, and you know, as a way to tell individuals a little bit about the, to tell them about the person who'd passed away, and also to kind of mark their connection to that person. And so we did have these four essays that talk about memorializations. We didn't have um, any essays about. Um, the kind of cultures that don't memorialize the dead, um, that, you know, decide to, you know, have their, they don't, um, they destroy or give away all their belongings and they are not meant to mention the person who's died um, that would have been an interesting aspect, but we had no one to, you know, to offer that kind of essay. So instead, we focus on memorialization. And that's also a big part of what happened in my own research. It was, it's very important to continually memorialize the dead um, as well. And that kind of finishes up our sections
1: in the book. Speaking, speaking of your own research, Dr. Christopher, could you maybe Get into your chapter a little bit and talk about the connections between death and identity. Sure.
2: I mean, my research began at, with my master's thesis, and I went to study death and dying um, in this, on this Greek in this Greek village on the island of Karpathos um, over the you know the span of a summer, um, and I write in my chapter how no one passed away that summer. Um, and instead, I went to a lot of memorial services. And the one thing I noticed doing that master's thesis research was that it really seemed to me to keep the community together and the community was really interested in maintaining those ties. And one way they did that was through these memorialization services. But I also, when I went back later to do my dissertation research, was which was on a different topic altogether, um, I, I did experience death. Um, three days, I think, after I arrived, one, one of the women that visited me the day I arrived, passed away. And so I saw a funeral at that point and saw people kind of go through this, the steps of the funeral. And so it became clear to me that in these instances that rituals sustain those social connections and kind of also show one's role in the society. Um, And also there is a presentation of self, um, as Goffman says, in these kind of events where you are considering what others think of you in some way but there's also an internal aspect associated with feelings and and those feelings can be of sadness of grief of guilt of wanting to honor the dead and all this is kind of going through you know when i was experiencing specifically the loss of my grandmother those feelings were going you know those were things i was considering and so um i found the rituals to be helpful in that they guided me through Um, The process, this really kind of where you kind of feel unmoored, kind of, and you have all these emotions. Um, People knew how to help me because they kind of helped me follow the rituals, the various rituals that I needed to do. But it was also, these rituals allowed me to kind of showcase who my grandmother was and who I was as well. So if I did the rituals correct, or, and I, I can even step back. If I did, if I care give, if I care, if I care gift, I'm sorry, that needs, <laughs> um, if, if I provided the appropriate amount of care for my grandmother, that made me a good, granddaughter. And that was important in the eyes of the community. I mean, I had, I have had access to the community and I've heard stories of bad daughters, bad grandmothers, bad husbands and, and so forth. And so there was an expectation already. I understood those expectations of what it meant to be a good family member, but also a good person, a good community member And so I tried to fulfill those roles as much as I could. And, and I, it began with giving her care. So there was that aspect that I want to show that I'm doing what I need to to do for my grandmother because I'm a good person. I'm a good granddaughter, but then you really did want it. I mean, I really did want to do it because I had this connection with her. That was an emotional connection, uh, A connection based on history and experiences. And so that was all very important. And the kind of the funeral itself was a way to really showcase who my grandmother was to the family, to myself, and to the community. And, and so people in this community made sure that they the funerals were well planned. The memorial services were well planned because it it provided it showed an indication of prestige in the community, um, and also a way of honoring the deceased. Right. So you know if 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 you didn't put together a good funeral or a good memorial service. It, service, that means this person wasn't cared for and you didn't honor them in the way that they should. And that would also reflect on you negatively, especially if they felt that the person was somebody who should be honored um, and should be respected. And so the funeral, the memorial services were all kind of a way to showcase that I was a good person, I was a good Carpathian, I was a good Eastern Orthodox Christian, I was a good granddaughter, and all of that. And um, while also kind of letting people know that I, you know, my grandmother was somebody worthy of being respected and mourned, and so forth. And you and you see these questions of identity also in Rebecca Moore's research on Jonestown Memorial with the insider-outsider and Cammie Fletcher's work as well. Um, with identifying the deceased as important through kind of their memorialization that occurs. Um, And so you just let people know where the deceased stands, where others in attendance stand, where you stand. And some of it is calculated and performed, but a lot of it is also felt deeply in terms of obligation, duty, honor, sadness, grief, whatever emotions the person's feeling. And um, more recently, you kind of got to see the importance of identity and funeral in Queen Elizabeth's funeral. (laughs) If you watch the procession, you saw where where relatives were in the procession and if they were allowed to wear military uniform or they weren't allowed to wear military uniform. And the whole mourning ritual, um, mourning period in the UK, you know, that was set aside to kind of Re, you know, reinforce how important Queen Elizabeth was to the entire country um, in various different ways. So, yeah, that was my chapter.
1: <laughs> One thing that jumped out at me in your chapter was the role that gender was sort of playing throughout these, these different rituals. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So traditionally in Greek culture and even if you read ancient Greek accounts, women are the ones that care give and they're the ones especially present during kind of funerals and memorial services. And they're, they're an, they have the important role of taking care of the person who's dying. Um, and the person who has passed away whose body needs to be prepared for death without that preparation. Um, they kind of are seen as not doing their final duty to the deceased, whoever that might be, Um, usually a close relative or a spouse or something. And also it's problematic for the person who's died because the soul kind of needs assistance from the living to get where they are going. And so women have this kind of uh, caregiving role that continues well after the death. So there's a fragile border and and you continue to have church services and, uh, and memorial, uh, memorial services for the individual. And the idea is that you kind of move their soul along and help them in the afterlife. Men are also uh, present, but they're kind of removed a little bit. So um, when someone passes away... You know, and this was in two thousand and five. Things have changed quite drastically in the village and in the island. But at that time, when somebody passed away, they're laid out in the home, and the women stay near the body, but the men stay in a room adjoining the body, and and they spend the entire night until the next day when they, the funeral happens and the body's buried. There are some roles for men, such as. Uh, carrying the casket, and um, one that was very Im- important and made uh, a, a kind of a real uh, impact on me was long ago, my great-grandmother died, and I remember the that my grandfather wanted to hold the lid of her casket, which is the person who leads the procession to the church, and I remember seeing him, um, because I did not go to the funeral, I watched it and I remember him holding the lid of the casket and leading the funeral and just remembering, remembering his face. And then many years later, when my grandmother had died, one of my cousins requested to be, to have that position. He wanted to hold the, the, the lid of the, uh, the casket for my grandmother to lead the procession. And so these kinds of things are important, um, And they are gendered in in that, you know, men are expected to to deal with the casket, ordering the casket, bringing the casket up, transporting the body. But the women are meant to kind of prepare the body and then um, organize the rituals that happen afterward.
1: And speaking of ritual, Dr. Tommen's chapter deals quite a bit with this idea of the connections between death and ritual. Dr. Tommen, can you get into that?
0: Yeah. So um, I focus largely on um, sort of rituals that I saw continuing to come out, um, not only with mourners, but also with the funeral directors themselves. Um, one of the things that I, I found particularly fascinating when I was doing my field work was um, the first time I observed an embalming Um, and I could definitely, I mean, the, the ritual process of it for the embalmer, um, just jumped out at me. Um, you know, he, he, it was very interesting that he not only compartmentalized the body. So he, he went through the various stages of embalming very precisely. Um, you know, first they have to clean the body then they have to, you know, make the cut in the neck to pull out um the vein and artery because one will have one will drain blood, one will have your um embalming fluid enter in. Um so just that process and then also putting the body because embalming fluid it doesn't harden the body but it it stiffens the body and so he would, you know, place the hands where the hands needed to go um, make sure that one of the things, one of the tricks they do is they will put um, cotton behind the ears to make the ears sort of stick out a little bit more and just various things. So he sort of went part by part, but then also talked to the decedent, um, you know, Mr. So-and-so, this is what we're going to do first. This is what we're going to do next. Um, And it was really important to him clearly important to him to maintain the personification at the same time that he was compartmentalizing. Right. So, and one of the things that particular funeral director said to me in an interview was that for him, from his perspective, um, when the, really the, the hardest deaths were that of teenagers and children, but outside of that, you either, Looked at it. If you were a religious person, for example, you believed that the soul had moved on and it was just a body left behind. But if you did not have a faith system, so if you're an atheist or agnostic, whatever, it's still just a shell. So he kind of talked about being able to kind of separate that. But it was still very important to maintain the fact that this was a person, that this was someone who had been loved. This was someone who had been cared for. This was someone who was important to someone, at least one person in their lifetime. And so I, I thought that was really interesting, that it wasn't just about the rituals that we go through as mourners. So, um, you know, there's, for example, the uh, so there's the sort of secular side. Rituals, in other words, contacting the funeral director, making sure that you contact a florist if you're going to have flowers. Um, then there's sort of the nuts and bolts stuff: talking to the life insurance folks, talking to, you know, the doctor if there's some issue with the death certificate. There's all of these sort of aspects of it, right? And then in a funeral, in particular, um, you know, making sure that you make those phone calls, making sure that you pick out music if that's something that you want. Um, so there's sort of all of these aspects to it as a mourner, as the bereaved, but then also behind the scenes, there's also a lot of ritual aspect to it. Um, you know, just this process of getting things set up, um, the embalming process, as I mentioned, um, they all have sort of, steps that they will do things in, in in order of, you know, in terms of like when to contact the paper and put out the obituary and things like that. So um, I just, and, and again, this might just be me being an anthropologist, but I just saw ritual everywhere. And so it was hard for me not to write about it because in everything that was done, both on the bereaved side and then on the behind the scenes side, it just... I just saw it everywhere, and so it was. It it just sort of was something that jumped out at me. So it was something that I um, focused on because, um, personally, I don't see a way to separate the way that we deal with death and dying, and ritual.
1: One thing that your chapter really brought into focus for me, who, uh, to be fair, I, d- I haven't thought about this a lot before reading this book. Uh, was the importance of the role of funeral directors in taking care of people, in taking care of how all of this takes place. Could you maybe talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned earlier, um, in the West and in the U.S. in particular, we want to do everything we can to avoid talking about death, facing death, dealing with death, etc. And so funeral directors have sort of emerged as this really important role because then they're the ones that get to deal with all of that stuff that we don't want to deal with. They're the ones who clean the body. They're the ones who prepare the body for burial. They're the ones who do hair and makeup. They're the ones who um, typically will contact the life insurance folks. They're the ones who deal with all of that. And so we are able to just sit in our grief and deal with our grief and our sorrow. And they've sort of become this really important figure in American funerals in particular. Um, And so I I sort of talked about how they're also liminal figures. So they spend a lot of time and, and that's true in a lot of contexts. So societally speaking, you know, I think, and and I heard stories from every funeral director I interviewed where if they, like one of them said, if I'm on a plane and I have a particularly chatty neighbor and I don't want to talk to them, as soon as they ask me what I do, I tell them I'm an embalmer or a mortician and they stop talking. And so, you know, they're, they're sort of liminal societally, right? So we think it's kind of this sort of taboo. They deal with death and dead bodies and, So they're kind of um, sort of on the margins in that sense. Um, But then at the funeral itself, they occupy intentionally occupy liminal spaces. So they're sort of on the edge. They're sort of behind the scenes um, so that we're not focused on them, so that we're able to focus on each other. We're able to focus on the decedent. We're able to sort of spend that time, um, you know, talking about memories, sharing stories, sharing love and we don't have to worry about any of the nuts and bolts stuff that they take care of. You know, they line up the cars for the procession from the funeral home to or church, wherever it's being held to the gravesite. They um, are the ones who arrange the flowers. They're the ones who, you know, sort of shuffle people in where they need to go. Um, so they do sort of all of these things so that we don't have to worry about it. And we don't even notice that they're there. And in funerals that I went to after I had already um, sort of written everything and done all of this, I really started to observe. um, So particularly at my aunt's funeral, um, kind of just observing what they were doing. And it was really interesting because you do not think about them. When you're at a funeral for someone that you have lost, you don't think about the funeral directors at all. And so I think they really, whether they do it consciously or not, I think they really utilize this um, liminality, this liminal space that they occupy to be able to make things go more smoothly. And I do mention that while, um, I don't particularly agree with Durkheim's functionalist approach to, um, bereavement and memorial ritual, um, I do really like his focus on social cohesion because, um and and i saw this in particular with the death of my cousin because that sort of really nobody knew how to deal with it because he died by suicide and so we there was sort of this massive fracturing of the family and then to be able to see everybody coming back together for my aunt's funeral um it was at my aunt's funeral that my cousin's wife asked for her wedding ring back because when he had first died she was like, you need to take this or I will throw it in the trash because I, she was so angry with what he had done. <clears throat> and so to be able to sort of see them reconnecting and that happened because we didn't have to worry about what we were going to do with my aunt's body, you know, who was going to say the mass? who was going to you know, get her from point A to point B, we were able to just focus on each other. And I and I think that that is the central role of the funeral director, particularly in U.S. funerals, which is basically allowing the family in an event that can break social ties to allow the family to either come back together or to further cement those social ties and those social connections. And so that was... Um, sort of the, the role that I saw emerge when I did my research was just that they, they use their liminality to be able to help foster those connections and help us maintain those connections with each other.
1: So you bring up Durkheim and functionalism, and this is a beautiful segue into my next question, which is uh, slightly theoretical, but it brings both of your chapters together. And that is this idea of performance could you maybe speak about the importance of performance in your studies on death? Uh,
0: Kelly Calliope, do you want to go first?
2: I, I mean, for mine, it's uh, my chapter, it's central because I, 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 in Greek culture, what kept coming up when I was there from the time I was doing master's thesis work was really this sense of, you know, letting people know Kind of what's happening. So um, there, there was a saying: The the icon, that, or the you know, the image that you're showing to the outside world, um, and and so how can people know how you're gr- grieving a loss if you aren't showing it in some way? And so, um, you know, kind of that. Aspect was very important in funerals, and so there was a performative aspect. I mean, you're supposed to show that you are grieving, and in the past, you know, there was more of a performance in 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 some ways in that it was kind of more extreme than what we would be used to in the United States. Um, On the island of Karpathos, people would, you know, keen near the dead body, or there were examples of women. Who used to wear their hair braided and under a headscarf, undoing the headscarf, taking out the braids and pulling their hair to show how much the death of this individual um, bought, you know, caused them pain. And so you, you know, during the funeral, it was important to show how much you respected the person that died and how much they meant to you. Um, and, and so being emotional was expected. Um, and doing the "quote unquote" proper things that was required of you as a family member was expected. And so, if you didn't do the, if you didn't do that, then how how would how would you be measured? I mean, how would they know, um, you know, what to say about your experiences with this individual who's passed away? Now, there is also there is an understanding that there's internal. Feelings, and sometimes uh, individuals might not act in a way that is um, expected, and they they might explain that as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, for me, the research that I've done, there was an element of performance, and that performance was for others, but also for oneself. I, I mean, I I um, decided to write which are like lamentations in Greek. And I spent a good long time writing these so I could say them at my grandmother's funeral, because I felt if I didn't do that, people wouldn't understand what she meant to me and what she meant to me to my family. And so even though I, I'm, you know, I had to come up with verses in Greek, which was very difficult for me. I decided to do that. And I remember telling myself as I was reading those out in the church during her funeral, I'm not going to cry because I'm going to ruin, I'm going to ruin the performance. It's not going to come through the the, the meaning and the emotion of these words. is not going to come through if I start crying and, and not saying them properly. And so I I did my best to do a good job performing that aspect of the funeral. So yeah, that part was important for me.
0: I really like that you brought up um, that idea of not crying during those lamentations because I definitely dealt with that. So the the sort of, I guess history, and I mentioned this in the essay, but um, having to sing um, Amazing Grace at all of these different funerals, that sort of came about because um, I used to sing in the church choir and my aunt and uncle, and this is when I was in high school and college, and my aunt, my aunt and uncle were planning on coming and my uncle couldn't make it for one reason or another. And my aunt showed up and she, and my uncle was sad. He, he was very sad that he had missed this. And then he ended up dying a couple months later. And so my aunt was like, he never got to, to hear you sing. I want you to sing that at his funeral. And so it sort of became this thing in our family that I sang it at every funeral. And I was a wreck during my cousin's funeral. Um, And to the point where my mom was like, are you all right? And I just remember thinking, no, like, obviously I'm not okay. This is, this is awful. This whole experience is awful. And, and then when it came time for me to sing the song, I shut that off, went up to the cantor microphone, sang the song, got through it and then came back and broke down again. And so, you know, just sort of that conscious decision to to stop that um, expression of of that. So I I appreciate Calliope that you shared that because I definitely had a very similar experience. Um, But in terms of performance in general, um, you you know, initially I was resistant to it. Um, I can't remember if um, performance theory was suggested to me or if it was something that I came across in my literature review. Um, but initially I was like, mm, nah, that, that, that doesn't really appeal to me. And then when I got into the field and started observing people, I, I realized right away how, um, how much it aligns with performance theory. Um, so Schechner in particular talks about um, sort of the stages of performance and he compares um you know, the, the the performance of a play to the performance of any ritual. So he talks about sort of the warm-up stage, the practice, the sort of run-through, the backstage area, front stage area, direction, all of this stuff. And I saw all of that. Um, the the moment that it sort of clipped for me was I was watching two of the funeral directors that I was observing um, break down. Um, they had just had a funeral and they were putting everything away. They were cleaning things up taking down chairs, moving flower pedestals out of the way, all of this stuff. And it, and it, and it occurred to me, they're breaking down a set. And so I realized that, that yes, there are so many parallels between, um, you know, the, the, the performance of a play and this, the performance of this particular ritual. So that's when I really started to delve into performance theory and I saw it everywhere. Um, you know, I, I had those processes of my own when preparing to sing the song, because even though it's a common song and we all know it, I definitely wanted to practice it beforehand. And um, you know, you, you have to practice it with the, the particular sound system because everything, you know, is different depending on where you're at. And so um, it just became like the ritual. It became something that I saw everywhere. I saw the, the sort of connections to performance theory everywhere. Um, performance of the mourners, um, you know, seeing who, who was a supporter, who was a chief mourner. So at my uncle's funeral, um, my aunt was so devastated that her daughter and son, basically had to carry her everywhere. They, they each stood by, by her, you know, holding on to an arm on each side and just sort of moved her around the funeral, you know, talking to various people and that role of support her as the chief mourner, um, remembering things like the Knights of Columbus, um, changing of the guard, thing that they did during my grandfather's funeral, um, you know, sort of seeing all of these performative aspects, um, just various roles that people were expected to play during each of these, um, each of these ceremonies. So it just, it was something that I, I couldn't, I couldn't ignore. It wasn't something that I could say, well, I'm not going to focus on that. I, it, it was just so central to everything I was observing that I, um, I had to talk about it.
1: And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, another theme that sort of runs throughout the book is empathy, right? Empathy with interlocutors, empathy with the dying, empathy with those who have lost loved ones, etc. Could you maybe talk about empathy as well as uh, it stems from chapter to chapter?
0: You know, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, Calliope and I, when we got together to kind of mm-hmm. prepare for this. And and that was, it. I think it's interesting that you pulled that out because that, that wasn't intentional. We weren't necessarily going for empathy as a theme, but I think when you have a reflexive aspect, it's, it's difficult not to have that because um, recognizing that we are also, mourners or potential mourners at the very least. um, It's hard not to make those connections when we're talking to other people who are going through grief or who are dealing with um, bereavement or loss or whatever it might be. Um, So it was, it was difficult. I think, I I, I think it it wasn't intentional, but I think there's no way that it wouldn't come out in a reflexive study of death and dying.
2: Yes. All our, all our contributors did empathize with some with someone who had lost or someone they themselves they themselves had lost and so that did come through in every chapter but yes we didn't we did not notice that when we were putting this together
1: this book is so valuable i uh, i mentioned it before we started recording i mean it's it's supremely readable and touches on such a such a serious topic with so much care and so much attention i can only say good things you know it's such a spectacular book
2: thank you so much
1: there there is a final question which is a tradition on the new books network and that is what are you working on now
2: um i am going to start working on um i wanted to study cultural change on the island of carpathos I've seen a lot of differences since I first started going there and a lot more commodification of the land and also things that were done, you know, services that were provided by family members have now become services you have to pay for, including, you know, uh, not having some people not having family members around to to lift the um, casket and take it, the coffin, and take it to um, its final resting place. And so having to pay for those kinds of services. So I I wanted to look at those kinds of questions more broadly and, and kind of see what's happening, because I have noticed a lot of changes that have been occurring and those interest me and also kind of figuring out why it's happening and um, how it's impacting ideas of um, community and identity and, and the, uh, on the island of Carpatos. So that's kind of where I'm going with my next research project.
0: Yeah. And for me, um, as you mentioned at the beginning, as is mentioned on in my little bio on the back of the book, um, I'm interested in fat studies and food studies and uh, particularly where those intersect. And of course, one of the so one of the reasons I became an academic is because I just love learning new things. And I think that's one of the best parts about being an anthropologist in particular is that culture is always changing. So you're always learning new things. Um, and so I really enjoy the opportunity to be able to do that. But the downside of academia, of course, is that you focus on one thing, right? So I spent so many years researching death, um, and dying and bereavement and all that. And so I'm still kind of in the early stages of researching those things, um, basically learning about them in the first place, um, you know, in more detail other than, you know, having a colleague who did fat studies and another colleague that did food studies and kind of, um, you know, having personal connections to both of those things. And, and so I'm sort of still in the research phase of, of that. Um, but I am starting to, um, get to share it a little bit. So for example, um, one of the more recent classes that I taught at Wittenberg was globalization and food. And so we sort of, um, you know, I, I got to read the book along with them, you know, the, the food studies reader and learn about the different ways that, um, sort of different scholars, because food studies is, is interdisciplinary, um, which is near and dear to my heart as an American studies scholar. And, um, you know, sort of getting to see all of these different ways that different scholars talk about food and food processes and, you know, cultural connections to food and all that. Um, and, uh, it was kind of fun. We, the, the sort of, final project, the term project was a class cookbook. And I had them compile recipes and basically focus on one ingredient, and then talk about the the history of, or the journey of that particular ingredient. So whether that's, for example, farm to table, or um, if it's, you know, maybe the social history of a particular ingredient. And so it was kind of cool to get to see those presentations. Um, And then, um, you know, just basically just reading everything that I possibly can to be able to, um, start to learn about those studies and, and kind of figure out where I want to go. Um, I did also, um, it was a short little, um, blog type of post for, um, Hnet, which is a, it's a humanities, um, listserv type of website. And they did a call for short essays and I, and I started writing, I, I wrote about, um, Profane and sacred food in that particular context. And and the connection to fat studies was I wrote specifically about a Weight Watchers recipe that I had grown up with. Um, My mother, like many women in the United States, um, did lots of dieting, particularly in the 80s um, with Weight Watchers. You know, it was sort of when Weight Watchers kind of took off. And this was a family favorite. Recipes, so um, there's that connection to fat studies in the in the sense of you know sort of the sphere of getting fat or being fat. Um, so that the type of recipe that was chosen, but then also the connections of sacred and profane. So making sure that certain ingredients aren't in it because those ingredients might either lead to high cholesterol or high blood pressure or weight gain or whatever, um, and then also. Uh, you know, sort of what was sacred in the sense that the, the recipe itself is, is stained. There's, so it, it's been used a lot, right? So there's notes in the margins and um, stains from, from whatever ingredients. And so it sort of became a, a sacred recipe in the sense that it was something that would please her children, her young children um, who were, you know, picky to one degree or another, and, and then also something that could fit into her diet plan at the time. So, um, that, that is something that I kind of want to continue to explore is that this notion of, um, sacred and profane when it comes to ingredients or, or types of foods or whatever, and how that connects to the ways that we pathologize fatness.
1: And once these, uh, once these projects turn into books, I'd love to have you back on the show.
2: Uh Grant, that would be wonderful. Thank you.
1: The book is Beyond the Veil, published in 2021 with Berghan. Dr. Tama, Dr. Krista Dulaki, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having us. This was really great. Thank you very much.